Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 with Pastor John King. Thank you, Pastor John. Good morning, everybody. Today we are going to be in, as you can see, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Turn there in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. 14 through 29, and again, greetings online viewers. Uh, I feel like we're getting closer and closer to the, uh, the time when you will be able to join us live. So I want to encourage you to continue to pray for that, and as well as we will as well. And, uh, you know, we do not want to forsake the assembly. We do not want to make it a habit, and I'm not trying, online viewers, hear me, I'm not trying to point a finger at you, okay? I can understand why you will stay home during this time. But I think that the tide may be turning. So turn off your news, turn off the, the networks, and come back to church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, last week, we, uh, well, last, actually two weeks ago, because last week was Easter, wasn't it? Resurrection Sunday. It was our day. The Lord's Day, a special Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday. So three weeks ago, we covered the transfiguration of Jesus. This was the miracle on Mount Hermon. Three of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, were given a remarkable preview of Jesus in his glorified state. The gospel tells us that his face was altered, and it shone like the sun. His clothes were so dazzling and brilliant that Mark had no earthly word to describe the intensity of the bright white appearance which was, he described was like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. On top of that, Moses and Elijah appeared before them, and they overheard them having a conversation with Jesus about his coming betrayal. The thing that Jesus has been telling them all along, his coming betrayal, his suffering, and his crucifixion. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Prophets. But remember, both the law and prophecy find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus really straightened things out. It may not seem that way right now, but Jesus really does straighten things out. And through his coming death and resurrection, Jesus will solve the sin problem. He'll make a way for you to come to have fellowship with God if you'll receive him as your Lord and Savior, if you'll come to him and admit your need. And we're going to talk about that today a lot as we approach God and what we can learn. We learn through this experience that Jesus was not only validating the truth about his coming death and the power of his resurrection, but he was equipping these three men for future challenges, the times of trouble and despair. And they will someday look back and they will affirm Peter's words, which we have written for us in 2 Peter Verse one, chapter 1, verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. This was a real deal. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty, or of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. God spoke from heaven. And He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard His voice. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. They were eyewitnesses. And so here we have the fact that today they're coming down off the mountain. They're coming into reality, if you will. A lot of times that's you know, what we do. We come off these experiences and we come into reality. But today we're going to learn about the price paid when we try to serve and do ministry without, absent of, serious believing prayer. You see, it becomes just a work of the flesh. No matter what former work God has done, in the case of the apostles, of course, they had cast out demons, they had healed many sick, and now they were going to be deeply humiliated. Because they attempted to cure by their own strength. And it's been said that the devil can be conquered only by a prayer rooted in faith 
and receiving its power from God alone. Amen? Let's follow our verse today. Let's read through verses 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 9. I just need to find it. Oh, here it is. Ha! I could have read it from up there. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately they saw him. All the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeting him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and he sa- he, when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21, so he asked his father, well, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him down into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. When the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come, or this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would now go before us as we consider once again the truth of your word. And Lord, not only consider the truth of your word, but consider the power of your word. Knowing that you're the source and have all authority over all things, Lord. We submit to you now in faith. We trust you that your word is true. Go before us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You know, in commenting about this particular passage, uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, you guys may be familiar with him, he writes this. He talks about reality. He says, reality, that's where we live. It can be so irritating sometimes. No one loves Thanksgiving more than I, but after the delight of a great meal with family and loved ones gathered around a grand dinner table, there's always a stack of dishes to scrape, wash, dry, and stack after the meal. That's reality. Now take, a gra- uh, take graduating from school. How marvelous is that? After many months of years of classes, reading assignments, papers, late night studying, and tuition payments, you finally receive your diploma or degree, a cap slung into the air, a gown, a ceremony, a celebration, and then you have to find a job. That's reality. Return from vacation and guess what's waiting for you? A stack of bills and a backlog of email messages. After the honeymoon, there's marriage and a lifetime of adjustments. After the birth of a child, there's responsibility. After the purchase of a home, there's maintenance. Tell me about it. Reality, 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 he writes. That's where we live. After the disciples experienced the exhilaration and the wonder of the transfiguration, they came down from the mountain to face reality. So our first point today is, you know, just seeing how, how it's done. How do, how do we come down and face reality? We all have to do it. 
And we see Jesus and his disciples. It says in verse 14, And when he came to the disciples, those were the nine who remained behind from the transfiguration, he saw a great multitude. In this case, it was sort of a casual group of many people that really didn't have much of a purpose other than to watch a dispute. And he said, there were, he, said they, he came, he saw a great multitude, and scribes were disputing with them. That word disputing means to question or to argue in opposition to someone and attempt to prove them false. That's what disputes are all about most of the time. It's a reminder when Moses came down in the book of Exodus. You remember he came down from the mountain after being present with the Lord, his face still shining, and he found the nation Israel in total disarray. They were worshiping a golden calf. And his, his right-hand man had helped them to create this idol. What a mess. It's like turning on the daily news, right? Maybe thinking that there's peace on earth. Maybe. maybe. Not likely. No wonder people are always trying to escape reality. All the time. How about the person that said, Hey, you know what? I turned off the network news and COVID-19 went away. I mean, you know. Maybe not that funny for some of you. But reality can be a very difficult situation. And it's how we deal with reality is where the rubber meets the road. Amen? Amen. And so immediately, though, we see this interesting thing in verse 15. Immediately, when they saw him, you know, they saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed. Do you ever have that, that thought, that, that word you say? Sometimes you just say, thank you, Jesus. You know, uh, you may have a little bit more of an inflection to it because it happened unexpectedly. Thank you, Jesus. And here he is. And what do they do? They run to him and they greet him. Now that word for greeting means to salute him. I mean, they were so excited to see Jesus. Now the same incident is told in the other two Gospels of Matthew and Luke. But only Mark brings to light the close attention to the crowds. Because Peter was, remember, dictating this letter to Mark. He was an eyewitness as, as well. But they were surprised and excited to see him. Why was that? Why were they surprised and excited to see them? Now, some people look at it this way. They say, perhaps Jesus had retained some of the glory of the transfiguration, kind of like Moses when he came down off the mountain and he was glowing. They may have seen this. But others argue that this was not likely because Jesus had already told his disciples, if you remember, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about the experience. So most likely, this was a sudden and unexpected appearance, and it stirred the crowd. You know, when we get a surprise from God, and when God shows up in our time of need, it can get you very excited. It can get you very humbled as well. But he arrived just when his disciples needed help. Why did they need help? Well, look at the situation. You had an atmosphere of questioning and unbelief. You ever been in one of those atmospheres? Come on, I know you've been in that atmosphere. You may have been in that atmosphere in your home. You may have been in that atmosphere in your workplace. You may have been in that atmosphere in a small group Bible study, in a prayer group. You know, we can find ourselves, when it comes to spiritual things and things of the Lord, we can find ourselves in a, in a kind of a mess. Because of unbelief and unrighteous questioning. And you say, well, wait a minute. You kind of know the story because I read it. You know, they tried to heal and they couldn't. Well, let's, let's continue on. And let's find out why. In verse 16, Jesus asked the scribes, he says, what are you discussing with them? You know, he's, it's almost like, okay, what's the subject of your argument? Not that he needed to ask. Notice Jesus' re protective response. He's the chief shepherd. He's going to watch over his flock, those that are faithful to him. But Jesus' question was also meant to draw the person who needed healing. You see, he knew the situation. There was a person that needed healing, and he wanted to bring that out. You know, Jesus, by his power and by his, his authority, he would turn the attention away from the disciples and to him. Such an important thing for us to remember. You know, we're called to be together, we're called to be in fellowship, but let's not be, you know, looking at one another, the body, in a, in a sinful way. 
Let's always look to the head, Jesus. We always need to turn our eyes to him, even while we're together. He's the one to be glorified. And of course, it, you know, what he intended came out in verse 17. It says, then one of the crowd answered. Now notice, the scribes didn't answer, and the apostles didn't answer. Why didn't the scribes answer? Because they were bummed. Jesus showed up again. They were having a, a field day with these guys. And they didn't like the fact that the master had shown up. And so they were upset about Jesus' arrival. So this man, this father, he says, teacher, I brought my son. I brought you my son. He came to, you know, intending to see Jesus. We don't know how or why. I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. Now this man, in, in uh, referring to Jesus as teacher, uh, your King James Version, if you have it, it says master. The master. And it's one who teaches concerning the things of God. So he recognized Jesus. He'd obviously heard about him. And here's this, this boy. And this boy has a mute spirit. He's unable to speak. It's a demon. Now, David Guzik points out something rather interesting, I thought. He says, a mute spirit. In the eyes of contemporary Jewish exorcists, remember there were exorcists, in that day. They were not very successful most of the time. And you know, you, you recall as we read through this gospel, there are hundreds of incidents where Jesus is casting out demons. Because, you know, for 400 years again, the truth hasn't been, God hasn't spoken, and the enemy has really taken over the land. And he says here, in the eyes of contemporary Jewish exorcists, this was a very difficult situation, if not impossible. For them to be able to cast out a demon. Remember, these are the Jewish teachers, the scribes and rabbis. They couldn't cast them out. And this was because they believed that you had to learn the demon's name before you could cast it out. I mean, you talk about uh, strange. And if a demon made somebody mute, well, you could never learn his name, could you? So you're stuck. You know? But not, of course, in Jesus' view. But an interesting side note. And the man goes on to describe to Jesus here and to everyone in verse 18, speaking of what happens to this young man. It says, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. Demon possession and our modern epilepsy have similar um, symptoms. When he says it seizes him, he takes possession of him. That's a scary thought. You think of a wild animal taking possession of something with its teeth or its claws. It throws him down. Now that word, when he talks about throwing him down, it doesn't just throw him down. It tears. It, it rends. It tries to break that person. Of course, he foams at the mouth. Uh, the old English would say, he foameth. But he foams at the mouth like a rabid animal. And of course, gnashing his teeth, grinding or gnashing one's teeth. And then it says he becomes rigid. The old English says to pine away, to dry up. Becoming emaciated, thin. Won't be able to eat. And so the condition he describes very in detail to us. And it says, so I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. You see, his disciples were looked at as Jesus' representatives. Let that sink in. This is an important fact when somebody comes to our church asking for a handout. It, happens, it happened this morning. We were able to help a man who needed gas. You know, in our skeptical world, we tend to say, ah, he's just scamming us. Well, people here gave uh, what little we had because cash, we don't use cash much. But people here that were here earlier this morning gave this man enough gas to get a little farther down the road. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. You know, we're not only his representatives, but we're also his hands and feet. We need to remember that. And then he says, but they could not. Now look, this wasn't due to the lack of authority. You remember in Mark chapter 6, verses 7, and again in 13, 
when he sent out the twelve. He says he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil, many who were sick, and they healed them. So they already had the authority. These disciples, they already had the power to do it. One writer put it this way. He kind of sums it up. The father's intention was to bring his son to be healed by Jesus. Since Jesus was not available, he made his request to the disciples. Because Jesus had previously given the disciples authority in his name, the father's request was not inappropriate. But the disciples were unable to meet this pressing need. Now, after hearing that, um, Jesus kind of answered in a very famous set of words here, very famous statement. When Jesus heard that from the Father, he said in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? Now that, that word O is an interjection of extreme emotion and pain. And of course we know faith. Faithless means unbelieving and without trust. And speaking to a generation, he was speaking metaphorically of every man and woman who was alive at that time, who had been, uh, you know, they were like each other in their pursuits and their character. So he says, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? And then, of course, he says, bring him to me. How long shall I bear with you? In other words, how long shall I endure your opinions and your actions? So this was a rebuke from Jesus, not only to his disciples, but to everyone who was present. He was rebuking the people who represented the generation that stood before him. Their spiritual immaturity, their unbelief, their religious hypocrisy. All of these things grieved and saddened the Lord. You know, after two years of continuous healings and miracles, he had more than proven that he was the Son of God. And so he said, bring him. So after expressing his frustration, the Lord will do what the Lord does, what he came to do, what he still does today. Destroy the works of the devil once again. So the lesson for us maybe at this point is, look, when we face despair, and by golly, we do. No question about it. And when something seems just too big, it's just too large. It's too big of a giant. It's too big of a mountain. What do we do? We leave it in God's hands. And we do the work that needs to be done because there's always something that needs to be done. But we put our faith and we put our trust before the Lord and then we continue to do what needs to be done being filled with the Spirit, not trying to do and strive, but knowing that the Lord has heard us, having faith to believe that He has heard your prayers, He knows your situation. See, that's kind of what we're getting to here. Jesus starts to address several issues for us. The reason why His disciples could not heal the child, He's going to address that. And, and simply put, it's a lack of faith. It's faithlessness. The father of the boy, he's going to address him as well. And along with the father of the boy and the disciples and the crowd, he was part of a, of a generation that was spiritually blind by their own sin and their own false teaching by the very religious leaders who should have recognized the Messiah and, and led, you know, escorted the people on a great revival as a nation, but chose to hold on to their power instead. And they sent him to the cross. And we, we learned about that these last couple of weeks. But the Lord also deals with every generation. Jesus' rebuke was not isolated to the past. How often do you and I grieve the Holy Spirit with our unbelief, with our worldliness, with our self-centeredness? And what does that do? That leaves you and I ineffective and powerless for the work of the kingdom. That's exactly what happens. We know it to be true. Now in verse 20, we see that Jesus now starts to dig deeper. 
He's going to dig deeper into this situation because not only does he want to rebuke them for their unbelief, but he wants to show them something very important. In verse 20, it says, And when he saw him immediately. So now Jesus gets on the scene. You know, the the demon-possessed child is right there. What happens when the demon recognizes the God of the universe? Immediately, the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. This demon responded very violently as it saw Jesus. This boy was helpless. He was under the power of an evil spirit. His father was helpless. Imagine the pain and the grief he had for his son. Just imagine. The evil spirit was stubborn. It would not let go without making itself known. Because the enemy knows he's defeated. Revelation 12.12 John wrote, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Revelation 12.12 In verse 21, Jesus asked a question. He says, He asked the father, he says, how long has this been happening? How how long has this been going on? You know, and and you think, well, Lord, you, you already know these things. You know the answer to this question. But remember, the Lord is digging deeper. He's he's probing this man. He's probing his heart and his mind. Jesus knew the entire backstory, but he was deeply moved to help this this young, this father. What he wanted to do was to help him to turn his eyes to Jesus in order to strengthen his faith. You know, your faith will never be strengthened if you don't turn your eyes to the source of strength. If you don't turn your eyes to the Lord, you will never be strengthened. So Jesus is saying, tell me more, I want more. He's giving him personal attention. This shows to us that Jesus not only wants to heal our wounds, but he wants to establish an eternal relationship with us. The God who has all authority in heaven and earth wants us to know him deeply. And in that relationship, God wants us to admit our need. He wants us to admit our need. Jesus knew that this man's faith had been shaken. And so he asked the father, how long has this been happening? And the man says, from childhood. Now we know that child rearing is one of the most important and difficult tasks in life. Whether it's raising and caring for a child with special needs, or seeing your child grow up to become a rebellious prodigal. Only by the power of God can we receive the grace needed to persevere. We need to remember something as well. One writer said this. He said, we are all by nature, no matter what your situation is, you and I are all by nature children of disobedience. And in such, the evil spirit works and has done so from our childhood. For foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, and nothing but the mighty grace of Christ can cast it out. So Jesus was not so much uh, interested in in the boy's case history as he was in getting the father to do something. What did he want the father to do? Well, first of all, he wanted him to focus on his desperate need. You know, this wasn't just, hey, I'm going, here's, here's my son, fix him so we can leave. No, he wanted to focus on his desperate need. He wanted also to focus on Jesus, the one who was standing before him. He wanted to focus on Jesus and realize that only Jesus could meet his need. And he wanted him to focus on Jesus so that his faith now would be stirred up again. You guys remember, you know, the famous hymn that was written by a lady named Helen Lemmel in 1922. And the chorus kind of goes, the refrain says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So in verse 22, we see Jesus continues to listen to the man, listen to the man's story. The man goes on, he says, and often he has thrown him, he, the enemy, has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. What a torment. What an evil torment. This man's explaining what he's lived with for years. And then he says this. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You can see that this man is desperate because he's he's standing before Jesus and he still hasn't quite understood who is standing before him. And he says, well, but if you can do anything, as, as an afterthought. You see, the disciples' failure to heal him now reveal this man's skepticism. It would have been almost impossible in that day to deny Jesus' ability to heal. Because everywhere he went, he proved himself capable of that. He says, have compassion on us and help us. We've read several times so far how Jesus was moved with compassion for the people. You know, that's how God responds to us. We come, with him, we come to him in a very imperfect faith. But when it's genuine, God responds to us with compassion. And there's no way Jesus was going to turn away from this man's cry for mercy and help. No way. Even though Jesus had just rebuked a faithless generation, here stood a man before him expressing a genuine cry for mercy and compassion. One writer put it this way, It is not so much our faith as it is our cry for mercy and compassion that arouses God to help us. He's not impressed with our faith. It's, it's not his weak, <laughs> but he is and he will respond to our cry for mercy. It's not so much our faith as the object of our faith, and that's God himself. That's the one who does the work. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite heart. That's a lesson for us. Now we have in verse 23, Jesus' reply. He responds to what the man says. And he says to him this, he says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. If you can believe, All things are possible to him who believes. You see, Jesus replies to this man's spiritual immaturity with truth. It's not a question, if I can, Jesus. It's not not an if I can. But if you can, believe. If you can have faith. To be persuaded with confidence and absolute trust that Jesus is able to aid in doing or obtaining something. You see, that's the point, folks. When we come before the Lord, and a lot of times our faith is weak, our bodies are weary, but when we come before the Lord and we petition Him, we need to have confidence and absolute trust that He hears our prayer. We don't get to decide how He answers our prayer. We don't get to do that. But we need to have absolute trust and confidence that he hears our prayer. He said all things are possible. In other words, he has the ability. That word possible means uh, dunitas, ability. It's what his power could do to him who believes. All things are possible to the Son of God. The power of God is available. But a person must trust in God's power. So you and I, we're learning right now as we go through these passages, again, we're being reminded of this great principle of prayer and faith. They go together. They're not just words spoken. They are prayer with faith. 
Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now we see in verse 24 that Jesus finally got to this man. You know, you ever been in that place where the Lord finally reached you? He really got to your heart, the heart of the matter? Well, here's what he says. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. You see, Jesus cut to the quick of his heart. Because Jesus' words are so powerful, folks. We know that. Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, he goes deep. He digs deep. <laughs> He can get to the matter, the heart of the matter. If you will open yourself up to him, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now's the time. Lord, help me with my unbelief. I might be a skeptic. I might not believe all these things that these Christians are saying. You can say those words to Jesus even now. So he says, Lord, I, I believe. Remember we said our faith is imperfect. He has faith in Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe. But now he cries out for unbelief. He says, help my unbelief. The faith that he has, he recognizes, is weak and imperfect. But notice what happened. The man had now shifted his request from having his son healed and delivered from the demon to having his own faith strengthened and restored. Remember what Jesus was trying to get him to do. He was trying to get him to focus on the Lord, on Jesus first and foremost. Therefore, he asked Jesus to heal him. In other words, asking the Father to be healed first. He says, whatever's in me, Lord, which does not believe or want to believe, heal that first. It's like removing the log from our own eye. This request was not only appropriate, but life-giving, says one writer. And you know that this is music to God's ears, isn't it? Jesus, right now, he sits, he ever sits at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us. We see that in Romans 8.34. Now, when we watch a person interact, remember this always. Whenever you see an interaction going on between Jesus and a person, that teaches us about how we are to interact with God, depending on the outcome, okay? Some ways are not good. You know, he says he told a rich man, sell all your possessions. And the rich man heard him and said, nah, I'm going to keep him and moved on. In this case, this man's heart was cut to the quick and he admitted his need. And so that's an example for us. We can learn a great deal about our relationship with Christ. Notice how this man responded to Jesus. He said spiritual immaturity, he didn't say this, but we noticed that spiritual immaturity must be acknowledged by humility and a cry for help. The man was weak, but his need was desperate. And he accepted the Lord's word. Will you take God at his word? The man responded in humility and he cried out with tears. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Note that he cried out for Jesus to help him even with his faith. He needed help even in believing. You know, that's the truth, isn't it? Isn't that the truth sometimes? We need help just believing and trusting God. Don't, don't, be, don't try to you know, uh, deny that in your heart. I know you're not doing that. I can't see your heart. But, uh, you know, folks, we need to be honest with God. And we do need help in that. I don't, I don't care what some fancy theologian told you. Let's be honest before God that we need help with our faith. Psalm 103.13 says this, As a father pities his children, 
So the Lord pities those who fear Him. So the man cried out. And notice what happened now as we move forward in the, in the verses 25 through 27. We see Jesus' word and power. And what does it do? It secures spiritual blessings. Verse 25, it says, When Jesus saw that the people came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Now Jesus, when he saw the people coming to him, he's like, look, this family has been through enough heartache. They've been through enough trouble. I'm going to pull them aside, and I'm not going to allow a circus to be made out by this. It's not going to become a source of public embarrassment and ridicule. And so Jesus quickly took them aside and he rebuked the unclean. All he had to do was say it. <laughs> to bring severe authority over. When you say rebuke, when, the, when God himself, the creator of the universe, when he rebukes, he brings severe authority over, in this case, uh, one of Satan's demons. And he cannot stand before God's word. And so he commanded him out, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. This is complete and permanent healing. You know, we have our struggles, our faith is incomplete, but when the Lord delivers you and I from certain things, sometimes it happens right at our conversion, sometimes it's an ongoing process, but it is complete. And just know this, that you do have a place, you have a seat at the table in heaven. You will join with the Father and the Son and everyone around this great uh, spiritual renewal, this great wedding feast in heaven. That can be guaranteed if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Complete and permanent healing and delivery. Jesus' words are so powerful and authoritative that it results in a miraculous action. So when you go to the Lord in prayer, when you pray in faith, keep in mind His power and His authority. And, you know, we see it many times in this delivery from demons. They don't often go quickly. Then the Spirit cried out. It convulsed him greatly and came out of him. One last attempt to discredit Jesus and destroy this child. Wicked. Wickedness. In fact, he, it says he became as one dead. It was like he was dead. It appeared as though this boy had died. And many even said it, he's dead. You know, look, look at him, he's dead. But Jesus, look at verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand. He lifted him up and he arose. Complete recovery. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You and I have a a guarantee from the Lord that He's going to continue to work in our lives. He's going to continue to lift us up. He's going to continue to give us victory. Today we finish, though, with a question from His disciples in verses 28 and 29. You know, Lord, what what are we missing? In other words, what what happened? Lord, can you please explain that they got up to, you know, the side to be with the Lord? And they said, You know, he he took him to a house and he said, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now, this is a good question. They they weren't just going to kind of gloss over the incident like that was embarrassing, but we don't want to talk about it. No, Um, they wanted to know what was going on. And what we learn here is that in our imperfect faith and in our immaturity and in the way the Lord is growing us, it can be conquered by seeking spiritual power. In other words, we can go back to the Lord and we can seek His face, we can study in His Word and try to understand when things don't work out the way He promised, you know, when things fail. They wanted to know the cause. And remember, Jesus had already given them authority. We said it earlier. They had authority over all the power of spirits. And they even exercised that power. So they couldn't understand why they failed. And what did he say? Simple, simple answer. Well, he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, not all versions say and fasting. 
Uh, but, you know, be that as it may, this, can, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer, if you will. Now, some people have tried to use this passage right here as sort of like a magic key. Saying, look, if I only pray hard enough. You've seen the t-shirts, you know, pray hard, time is short, and all that stuff. If I only pray hard enough in my own strength, I'll be able to unlock all the closed doors of healing. Now, how many people have you met that are so frustrated with Christianity because of that approach? You know, they think, well, I've been praying really hard. I sweat, you know, I, whatever. You know, I, I sweat beads of, of blood almost like the Lord would. And I haven't been able to unlock all the closed doors of healing. Because this is actually what the opposite of what Jesus was intending. They couldn't cast out the demon because they were relying on their own power. One writer put it this way. He said, Jesus healed many without faith. But here, the miracle is connected to faith because that is the necessary lesson for the disciples in the future. You know, Jesus will not always be with them physically. And their power will come by believing prayer. The man's weak faith was sufficient to bring the power of God to bear on his son's situation. And in the same way, imperfect but persistent faith is sufficient. It's those who do not ask and do not receive divine power to overcome life's difficulties. James talks about that in James chapter 4. If you don't ask, you will not receive. The disciples' failure set them up for this invaluable lesson on the necessity of believing persistent prayer. Now, as we said earlier, it says prayer and fasting. Uh, some manuscripts add the words fasting, and there is a disagreement, there is a dispute among interpreters whether these words should be included or not. But just know that for a Jew in that time, in the context, fasting was a natural part of prayer. And it was something that Jesus never condemned. So don't let anybody tell you, well, you know, you've got to pray and fast. If you, if you fast, that's something that's a spiritual discipline for sure. And when it's done with a proper spirit, it can be a reminder of our dependence on God and our thankfulness. But the main point is prayer. The main lesson in this miracle is that the power of faith to overcome the enemy. Why, Warren Wiersbe says, why had the nine disciples failed? We ask the question again. Because, because they were careless in their personal spiritual walk. And they neglected prayer and, if you will, fasting. You know, that's something we, need to, we, can, we can get so caught up with life, so overwhelmed by life's circumstances, that we become, as it, as it were, careless. You know, we pray, we say prayers before mealtime. You know, we have our, maybe even get up and do our devotion. But our mind's not there. Our mind's thinking about what we want to do that day. And we're not thinking about the Lord. And Jesus is, that effective prayer is so important for us. And how we pray is an indication of our faith. You know, he says, Lord, help my unbelief. It's an indication of our faith. Because it's our faith in God that glorifies Him. Paul wrote in, the, in his letter to the church in Rome, he, he highlighted how Abraham's faith in God's promise, and one of the promises that he gave to Abraham is that he would be a father of many nations. Despite the circumstance of him being 100 years old and his wife Sarah well past her childbearing years. Romans 4, 20 through 22. Talks, Paul talks about Abraham's faith. He says, in Romans 4, 20 through 22, he says, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, what happened? It was accounted to him as righteous. In other words, he was saved. <laughs> he was, his faith 
was accounted, his righteousness was accounted to him because Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross and paid the price for sin. But the Lord put it, righteousness in his bank, his eternal bank account. And so if you're a believer here today, you share in that same righteousness by faith. You trusted the Lord. Romans 4, 23 and 25, it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone. This wasn't just for Abraham, but it was also imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised us up, Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So folks, the question we kind of close with a couple questions here. The worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. If you're taking notes, maybe write this down. Ask yourself, what kind of limits do I place on God? What kind of limits have I kind of said, well, you know, I'm good with everything you've done in my life, Lord, but this, this one thing, you know, I don't believe you're ever going to answer that prayer. So what kind of limits do you place on God? And, or where do you have trouble believing God? You know, you can search your heart before the Lord, and you can, you can certainly come up with one or many areas. You and I have trouble believing God. Where is it? You know, where is this happening? And then maybe think about it this. What does it mean for you and I to be able to say, help me overcome my unbelief? These are important questions. Do you believe that God can do anything? Are you willing to leave the anything up to Him? Will you stop worrying or quit interrupting Him? Will you cease striving and will you simply pray? Will you accept the answer that He chooses to give? These are important questions. But let us not be diminished in our faith and trust in the Lord. Let's set aside our own agendas and respond to God's authority and obedience. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for all that you've done today, how you've taught us your word once again. Lord, we, we thank you that even though we approach you with an imperfect faith, that when we come before you with a sincere heart, that you'll have compassion on us. And so, Lord, we just we simply ask that you would give us faith. Help us with our unbelief. Help us in our times of struggle and our times of worry. Help us through this current crisis in our society, Lord. Help us to not only just hang on to our faith, because sometimes it feels like we're being overwhelmed, but let's, Lord, let's commit. Father, help us to renew as a church, as families. Let's renew our commitment to boldly come before the throne of grace and believe that God has the power to do what he says he can do and that we will trust him with it. Lord, may we turn off the noise and the sight and the sound that comes and just clogs up our minds as it enters through our eyes and through our ears, clogs up our spiritual person. Lord, let us just come and seek you for your pure goodness, the pure and holy word of God. Fill us once again with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us the power to walk in victory and in joy and in peace, despite what's going on. Lord, let us not allow this world situation to rob us of the joy that we have in you and the fullness and the riches of the blessings that we have in you. Let us fight the good fight, but not in our own strength. Let us be filled once again as we walk in your grace. We ask and pray all these things now in the mighty, powerful, precious, and authoritative word of Jesus Christ. Go before us now. We all pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Surely my God is the strength of my soul. Your love defends me. Your love defends me. 
And when I feel like I'm all alone Your love defends me Your love defends me You are my joy You are my song You are the will The one I'm drawing from You are my refuge My whole life long And where else would I go? Sing it out Surely my God is strength for my soul your love defends me your love defends me and when i feel like i'm all alone your love defends me your love defends me Day after day, night after night, I will remember you're with me in this fight. Although the battle, it rages on, the world's already won. I know the war's already won, surely my God is strength for my soul your love defends me your love defends me and when I feel like I'm all alone your love defends me your love defends me and we sing hallelujah you're my portion my salvation hallelujah surely my god is strength for my soul your love defends me your love defends me and when i feel like i'm all alone your love defends me your love defends me surely my god is strength for my soul your love defends me your love defends me and when i feel like i'm all alone your love defends me your love defends me and we sing hallelujah you're my portion my salvation hallelujah you're my portion my salvation hallelujah you're my portion, my salvation, oh, my salvation. Oh. You guys sing that out now. Surely my God.
Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.